Hey everyone, this is David from the Think Leaders team. Welcome to IBM Think Leaders podcast. Today we're talking all about top women in AI. I had a really fascinating discussion where I was taking the role as listener and learning from our two amazing guests. We talked all about cultural intelligence, the idea of being a mentor and being mentored by other females, and also what's the role of a male ally. In addition, we we discussed the idea of having strength in vulnerability. It's a really interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Happy listening. Hey, everyone. This is David from the Think Leaders team, and welcome to IBM Think Leaders podcast. Today, we're talking all about top women in AI. Really excited to have on today's show, Lily Gil-Vellante, who is the co-founder and CEO of CN and Culture Intel, and also Amanda Stent, who's the natural language processing architect in the office of the CTO at Bloomberg. So Lily and Amanda, welcome to the IBM Think Leaders podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right. So uh, Lily, why don't we start off? Tell us a little bit about your your background and, and the companies you run. Starting at the very beginning, I'm originally from Colombia. So I have an immigrant American dream story. My whole family is back there in South America. And I came uh, at the age of 17 with a student visa and a suitcase. So fast forward now, I always thought I was going to be in corporate America in a big corporate role and the entrepreneurial bug bit me. And here I am now as a female founder, proudly, um, kind of bringing what technology, culture and business can do all together uh, to drive growth, to stay ahead of shifting demographics and ultimately disrupt and innovate in this very fast moving market we live in. So those two businesses I have, one is more on a consulting and marketing side, CN, focused on helping blue chip companies find growth in new markets. But I think we're here to talk about culture intel, which is using (laughs) tech and AI and fun stuff to understand people differently. So I'll I'll leave it as that because I'm sure we'll get into it. Well, thank you. Yes, we'll we'll focus on that then. So Amanda, what about yourself? I have a PhD in computer science and I work at Bloomberg using natural language processing to both understand all the language that comes in in alternative data, credit card receipts, company filings, earnings call transcripts, everything, as well as to synthesize and produce natural language to help our customers um, get over the information overload that we all face today in the 21st century. Are you optimistic with the direction that we're, we're going into with, with handling so much of this data that's, that's floating around? Somewhat optimistic. I think in the area of structuring content, we're doing a pretty good job. We can take unstructured information, and I'm sure that Cultural Intel does this too, and extract signals from it to help clients and other users to better discover information. On the other hand, Quite often, as a result of the way that we do our AI, we conceal information from people, we remove control from them. And so what we need to do in terms of our AI is give people all the knobs so that they can find the information and get out of the bubbles that we put them in. So Lily, tell us then a little bit more about cultural intel, especially um, around uh, unstructured data. Yeah, a bit of of, of a backstory with the name. Culture intel is short for cultural intelligence, which is a term that I'm obsessed with. Because, you know, I find it amusing that the tech sector is obsessed with personalization, yet a lot of our research and me as a former corporate marketer, right? Every time I was served up research to understand people, consumers, intercept them, influence them, it was generic. 
Culture Intel is on a mission to bring that personalization at scale in the way we understand people by ethnicity, by gender, by mindset, by geography in the U.S., globally, etc. So that's really what I think we're barely scratching the surface on, on putting the voice of the people as our primary source of insight and understanding it at its most granular level possible. So why do you think, if we take your kind of assertion with industry being generic with this personalization, why do you think that's been the case? Is it just that the focus has been in the wrong area? And Amanda, that you can jump in as well. This is for, for both of you. I think there's a sleepy giant that many C-suite leaders maybe haven't seen in its full scale. And it hit me when I was at Johnson & Johnson in a corporate position, okay. which is why I created the company. Basically, when you look at the shifting demographics of the country, by the year 2040, we're going to be a majority-minority nation. Mm-hmm. Now, cities like New York, LA, Houston are already majority-minority towns. And when you ask any Fortune 500 where most of their volume in sales or growth are coming from, are from these big markets. So unless you start paying attention to who is driving the growth inside those markets, you may be missing out on a piece of insight that is going to help you tap into growth. So two data points for those that are listening that are important. No matter what industry you're in, 100% of population growth is coming from diverse segments in this country. Any analyst in Wall Street is going to tell you You bet on growth, anticipate it. Therefore, the way we tech enable, any way we understand people, use AI, use technology, we have to be inclusive and have cultural intelligence. Otherwise, you're going to have a half-told story. So Amanda, what about your perspective? Do you think you can offer some insight with how we go about analyzing some of this data? I think it's very true that we have historically in AI been overemphasizing information from certain demographics and overemphasizing the information that is in front of us. We should be trying to bring in all different kinds of information. In the case of Bloomberg, that means constantly scaling the number of companies we cover, the number of securities we cover, doing a better job with private equity, doing a better job with all the sources of alternative data, such as ESG data and commodities data and and other kinds of data that you can't easily capture in just ticks of an equity ticker. So we are need to work very hard on that and need to work harder on that. I think also that we need to give users control over how they are represented and pictured, even if it's just showing an alternative. So one thing that we do at Bloomberg is to allow our users, allow our clients to choose what it is that they tell us they're interested in. And then we can reflect that to them instead of trying to guess what they're interested in and then trying to reflect that to them. That becomes a hot topic uh, recently, especially around a lot of social media companies with the kind of assumptions they might be making about your personality. Where do you think we are right now on that evolution with having an accurate picture about who who somebody is? Not super great. And I'm not sure that automatically capturing an accurate picture of who someone is should be our goal. I think our goal should be to capture the information And then give people the control so that they can tell us what they're interested in right now and what they're interested in in general. How many of us have seen an ad for lamps after we looked for lamps and bought Mm -hmm. a lamp? Like that is not the time that you want to be seeing ads for lamps. You want (laughs) to be seeing ads for lampshades or carpets or whatever goes underneath your lamp, end tables. 
we should be giving users the ability to say, this is what I'm interested in right now. This is the bigger task that I'm trying to solve and working on understanding the world and understanding the artifacts that they want to interact with, perhaps more so than trying to just capture short summaries of human beings. If I could have a buck for every traditional marketer that has tried to poke holes at Culture Intel, I'll have millions already <laughs> sitting on a corner somewhere because it's not what you're trained to do in research. So the safer thing is for me to define who you are and serve you up with what I think you need instead of the other way around. So in, in our case, this morning I was on a call when a researcher asked me, so how does your panel work? And I'm like, it's not a panel. <laughs> it's like millions of unstructured digital discussions in real time. That is the source. And I cannot influence that. In 2016, when in June I was showing that Trump was going to win, people are like, oh my gosh, how can you do that? The polls say something. I was like, don't shoot the messenger. That's the voice of the people. <laughs> and things like that is it's not forcing or leading the witness and asking for an answer you want to get, but really be open to a discovery. And that takes a humbling mindset. And that for tech people, researchers, et cetera, it's hard because you're trained differently. So I think we it's a mind Yeah, yeah shift. so you're saying it's a, a mind shift. Do you think we'll also have to kind of unlearn certain things or do you think? Yeah, I think so. Like these blue chip clients who's like, oh, how do I sell more of that, right? That they hire us for that. And they want it to be in their terms. And you have to be open to the fact that our discovery in like, what do people want in snacking these days? Maybe something that you're not giving them. Yeah. Which that in itself is an amazing nugget because then it's a cue for innovation. It's not an insight that confirms and validates something you want to know today, but it may be a foresight for something that has yet to be created. And that goes back to, again, what Amanda just said of not just assuming I'm serving you up what you want, that lampshade, again, that probably you bought already, but being willing to listen and maybe realize, oh, this person is looking for something else, but the signals are there. It's so hard for us as humans to get used to not having all the information at our fingertips and and that computers can help us to really structure and identify the signal and all that information. And we need those computer systems, those AI systems to be transparent about what they are showing us and where the anomalies are and where the trends are in the data. So we really need to focus on educating both young people and the C-suite, as you said, yeah. in adopting a data-driven mindset and also in being somewhat critical about the technologies whose output they are looking at and the potential things that might be hidden by those technologies. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Lily, uh, as you as you note, uh, even on your, your bio, that you're one of only 2.6% of Latinos serving on Fortune 500 plus uh, public board and then also uh, being a, a woman in AI. What do you think we are right now on that process with shifting not only women in AI, but also uh, female founding companies? I wish I could have a happy, optimistic answer, okay. <laughs> just to be honest. Well, tell us like, how it is. We when want, the, we when want the, the World Economic truth. Forum shows you that if we continue at this pace, like the pay gap is going to be filled in 200 years. It's like, oh, really? Wow. Okay, we can do better than that, right? But it's the same thing for female founders who are outpacing new business creation versus men at a rate of five to one. But we're still getting less than 3% of venture capital and angel funding. 
despite the growth and all of this, and, and we have women's initiatives and women in tech and girls who code and Latinas in tech. There's all this stuff, which is exciting because I think it's normalizing that profession amongst young people. But the fruits of that have yet to come in a while because we're still the minority in the graduating classes of traditional engineering programs. Now, here's a twist, and I'm an, an example of that. Definitely not Amanda, because she is our PhD genius next to me. <laughs> but I, I am the daughter of two engineers, my mom included. She was totally a trailblazer when no one was an engineer, and she was the only girl in her class. I tell people and I tell young women all the time not to freak out that STEM or a career in STEM, yes, well, we need the hardcore technical skills. Let's say somebody like me that later in life jumps into it can be learned back to the mindset, right? So to me, 10 years from now, and this is Lily's speculation, crystal ball. To me, AI platforms would be like back in the day when we needed to learn like Microsoft Word and PowerPoint and Excel. You know, it's just a way of being more efficient in the way you carry yourself every day. So I think women have long ways to go and we need to realize that there's different paths to jump into this journey of technology. What else do you think needs to happen for this to shift? You mentioned this is normalizing, but it sounds like there's still some progress uh, to go. I think we need both men and women together, realizing that getting more women in tech is not about being PC and doing the right thing. If I hear that one more time, I'm also going to jump out the window. <laughs> it's about recognizing that 80% of consumer spending decisions in this country are done by a woman. So anything you're designing, if it doesn't have a female perspective, you're probably going to have an incomplete perspective. There's research over and over that shows that when a company is run by a female, it reports upwards of 30% more profitability. So it's the user profile who's making decisions as well as the profitability of the organization that should motivate us to look at this kind of equity to be achieved, but it's not social justice. It's just good business. You can wait for others to find the solutions mm -hmm. or you can start being part of the solution today. So anyone that is listening right now arguably is already curious, intrigued in the sector, working in AI. Well, I'll ask you right now, so pay attention right now, if you haven't been to a high school or talked to a young woman about what you do, in the last six months, you are part of the problem. Looking at a study that I know happened recently, you know, when, when women that were in their first year of engineering were paired up with a female mentor, 100% of them stayed in the field, while typically half of those drop off. So there are interventions that already prove that. And it's a great retention mechanism. By the way, very inexpensive for those of you corporate leaders that are wondering, gee, how do I keep women engaged? Well, create these like buddy systems that are people that are genuinely there not to point feedback, or, but like really just be by your side. That doesn't cost us any money. It's just creating relationships intentionally for these younger women. Yeah, Amanda, I think this is a good time to talk about some of your work and participation, let's say, in Bloomberg's Women in Technology, a community of more than a thousand members around the globe, focused on fostering the development of leadership and technical skills for women in tech, which I think we should also mention. It's not only for women, it also has male allies. And I know there's a few other groups. Yes. So both inside Bloomberg and outside, um, I would like to agree with what Lily says, that the traditional route 
into technology may not be the traditional route into technology for women. Inside Bloomberg, I work with Bloomberg Women in Tech, and outside Bloomberg, I work with the Computing Research Association Committee on Widening Participation in Computing Research. And what we see in both cases is that women tend to come into tech. Their pathways into and through tech are different. They may come in later. They may have a different route to entry through different majors or through different interests. Part of this is what I'm going to call the grandparent problem. If you <laughs> if you can't see in your family and friends someone who's working in a field, then you may not know that that field exists and what the potential of that field is while you're in high school. So definitely early intervention is really critical. But also as a technology community worldwide, we do not have enough warm bodies to fill all the positions. Mm-hmm. And women can be some of the smartest and most expert in technology if we will allow for broader and more different pathways into technology as a career. So how do you think we go about changing some of that trajectory? Is is a lot of it around perceptions around the traditional career path to get inside tech? So one thing to know about Bloomberg is that people tend to come to Bloomberg and stay at Bloomberg for their whole careers. We have a lot of 20, 30 year Bloomberg employees. Yes. And the way that we achieve that is by allowing people to move around within the company. So one way that we get women in tech at Bloomberg is they come in through a different role. It might be sales. It might be analytics. It might be finance. It might be journalism. And then they become interested in the technology side and the engineering side. And we offer opportunities for women to move into those more technical and engineering roles within the company, as well as at certain points in their career if they want to move out. There are an increasing number of companies that allow that, that allow for non-traditional trajectories Mm -hmm. that are willing to do more open hires, looking at not just the undergrad CS majors coming out, because frankly, having other expertise in your background may make you better at communication, may make you better at leadership, may give you certain interpersonal skills that you can pick up the tech stuff and you can't pick up some of those other strengths as easily. Some of the other things that we do are are just to be very supportive of women when they come in because the leakage in the old pipeline metaphor was called leaks in the pipeline. Now with pathways, it's just that people have many more pathways out of the field than there are pathways in. So if we can support women when they are inside computing and technical careers and really allow them to reach the stage where they are running companies, provide them with the mentorship, the venture capital, If we have men who are willing to be mentored by and collaborate with women actively, not just mentor them, but be willing to be led by women, Mm -hmm. that way we can encourage women to really become part of and continue as part of technology as a field. You were talking about leakage. What, in your perspective, what causes some of that? that leakage? What what are those kind of pain points in the process? So there's a researcher in my field. Her name is Natalie Schluter. It's an awkward name. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. Natalie published a paper a couple years ago where she did a big analysis of who in NLP research is publishing with whom. Mm -hmm. And what she found is that since the early mid-2000s, women will publish and collaborate with women and men, and men will publish and collaborate with men. And what is necessary is for men to publish and collaborate with. Publishing in research is how you demonstrate expertise. Publish and collaborate with women and with members of underrepresented minorities. That's really what's necessary. I think women are doing what's necessary. Men need also to do what is necessary. Uh, Amanda, you also mentioned the trajectory, right? That a lot of times it can be non-traditional. I think this is a good opportunity to to hear about both of your your own uh, trajectory. What brought you into into doing what you're doing today? I was so kind of happy with my thriving and growing 
consulting and marketing firm, doing this cultural intelligence mm -hmm. stuff with my clients. And one summer in 2016, one of my pharma clients was going through a hostile takeover. It was one of my biggest multi-million dollar clients and in a poof disappeared because of this hostile takeover. Every vendor got put on hold. And then also another company, a cereal company, was going through a merger. They were acquired by some other company, closed their operations in the Northeast. Our clients were let go. I basically lost 60% of my revenues in a month. And I got mad for like a day because that's what entrepreneurs do. But then the day after, I was like, we're going to figure this out. I said, we are going to tech enable what we do. So I told my team, in the next six months, we will launch a tech-enabled solution to cultural intelligence. And they looked at me like, okay, you're crazy. How are we going to do that? So how do I do that? You surround yourself with people smarter than you. You can be the visionary. I know enough about technology to be dangerous, but not the one, you know, messing around with Python. But I can tell mm -hmm. you, can you try that? Because I know it's doable. You do it. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Wow, I love that. Adversity brought us to innovation. I could have stayed doing more of the same or create something new. And that's how Culture Intel was born. You mentioned that one of your secrets to uh, success has been surrounding yourself with different talents, right? Do you think that takes a certain personality though, mm -hmm. right? Because I imagine you have to be humble yeah. to a certain extent because there's a lot of people who kind of like to assume that they can do it all. What do you think others who are listening could kind of learn from that? Basically saying, hey, it's good that you know enough to be dangerous, but at a certain point you have to bring on Absolutely. other folks. If I could just comment yes, on your, what ahead. you said. Um, that is so true. And I think it's a it's a story that makes itself. Because if you surround yourself with people who you think are smart, you are enabling them to become the person that you are thinking of them as. So you surround yourself with people who you make to be the people that you've envisioned them as. Mm -hmm. It takes a very special kind of person to be that. But when you are that, you have an incredible richness of careers and an incredible richness of connections who you effectively fabricated. And then people end up doing stuff with you, not because they have to, but they want to because yes. they're getting the best yes. selves out. It becomes like this gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm. There's so much power in vulnerability because a leader is able to do exactly what Amanda said, get the best out of people around you. And I just tell people here, another simple takeaway for our listeners. If you're the smartest person in the room, that means you're really dumb. You as the leader can stay above it and see the forest, right? But know enough to go down into the woods as needed. But I see the best performing teams when you let them run. I know there's been some articles recently about women sometimes taking a different strategy for raising money in the startup community. What do you think from your own perspective? Yeah. What, what have you seen with, with how women go about raising funds? I'm a portrait of the insights and I don't know if I am proud about it. So it, it feels very Wonder Woman-like to say, I'm 100% self-funded and you know, blah, blah, blah. But are we limiting our growth because of it? And the big answer is, yeah, I know it is. Now, it's more convenient for me to talk to clients than talk to investors. I've had a few conversations with investors and I do feel like I have to be 10 times more prepared. Uh, they may look at my bio and resume and even though it has all kinds of fancy names and degrees and places from like Harvard or whatever, it doesn't matter because I'm not an engineer. 
Um, and, and there's that underlying thing of like, really? Like we've been published on research papers. Oh, but how is it valid? <laughs> it's like, ah, there's been times when I have to bring my male co-founder and let him talk. And we strategically decide that. Um, so yes, I've felt some weirdness. I've had, you know, uncomfortable discussions with investors, maybe on the line of inappropriate. And there is research that shows that. I would just like to say, look at the companies that Lily has founded and think about the companies. I'm always interested in AI and what we're not measuring, what mm -hmm. we're not measuring, what we're not seeing, we can't track. Think about all the women-owned companies that have not been able to start because women did, were not as perhaps a little bit as creative or they were looking for a more traditional path as Lily. And think mm -hmm. about all the fundamental discoveries and the outrageous amounts of contribution to GDP that we are missing because of those invisible non-companies that could exist if venture capital, if investors would take a little bit of chance. So why do you think they're they're not taking a chance? Because you might assume, right, if, if somebody was just focused on the numbers and then there's all these great stats to back up why investing in female-led companies would pay off financially. How come that doesn't seemingly win the day? When, what is it, 97% of venture capital is male? Mm -hmm. Quite often the applications, the products that are being brought to them, they cannot see how those products would be useful. So if most of the investors are not from the population that is going to be doing most of the purchasing, then you necessarily end up with some waste and bias in the system. Mm -hmm. And it is aggravated by our cultural biases. So we need more venture capitalists who are women and we need more women on the advisory boards of VC firms, as well as more ways for start for small companies to start and to grow yeah. into big companies other than these traditional methods. So Amanda, what about yourself? We heard Lily's background, her trajectory, what kind of brought her into where she currently is now. Love to hear about your own journey to where you're at right now with Bloomberg. So I got interested in AI in high school. This is not a very traditional trajectory for a woman or a man. Perhaps I learned a programming language called Prolog, which was the AI programming language at the time, like Python is today. And I just sort of really loved it. I loved that you could tell a computer things that were true and it would tell you things that were more things that were true based on that. I thought that was just fascinating. My second career tra trajectory, by the way, was computer security. I wanted to write viruses. When I applied to grad school, I applied to programs in both fields. And then I chose based on where I was accepted and what really excited me about the programs where I was accepted. But I always knew that I wanted to do a PhD and I knew that I wanted it to be in a computer science field. I thought I would have a fairly traditional career trajectory in academia, but I realized at some point that what I would like to do is break out the research and the teaching. I love teaching. I love research. Those two jobs in my mind are both full-time jobs. So I decided to split it up and that's how I ended up going down an industry research career path. In 2016, when I started looking at Bloomberg, I have former PhD students who are there and who told me that the company had really transitioned over the previous 10 years from a data company to a data science company. And that was really exciting to me. And the other thing that was really exciting was that all the language that we process at Bloomberg, we can ground to some ticker or some company. We can link it to something in the real world, which is really fundamentally what interests me about language, that we are talking about ideas, but we are also talking about things that really exist in the real world. And then when you were in the classroom earlier in your career, what did you see as your role as a professor with leading future sure. generations? I think that the role of a teacher 
is to enable people to think on their own and discover their own strengths. Computer science is a very algorithmic and fact-based field, and there's an increasing body of knowledge there that you, some people would like just to stuff into the open mouths of, of students, like you stuff worms into a baby's mouth. But that's not how to teach, <laughs> right? That's not how to teach a future technologist because the field moves so fast, you are going to be constantly learning throughout your career. So what I try to teach people is how to learn themselves. And I think that's not just true of computer science, but increasingly true of every field, but especially still true of computer science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lily and Amanda, thank you both for coming on our podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Hey, we really appreciate you listening to the IBM Think Leaders podcast. Here's my ask for you. If you have another person who would love this show, why don't you share it with them? Thank you. Thank you.